This podcast includes discussion of alleged sexual assault during recovery treatment, which is a topic that may be sensitive to some of our listeners. This is The Granite Beat, a podcast where we highlight New Hampshire journalists, ask them about recent stories they've published, and about what it's like to cover their corner of this small and interesting state. I'm Julie Hershan Hart, and I'm here with Adam Drapshow. Hello. Our guest today is one of the Granite State's own. Lauren Chuljan, a reporter and producer for New Hampshire Public Radio's document team, is a New Hampshire native and graduate of St. Anselm College. Yet, she had to stretch her wings a bit after St. A's and spent several years in Chicago with WBEZ. Back in New Hampshire and at NHPR, she caught wind of a bombshell of a story, which earlier this year was turned into a podcast called The 13th Step. We're excited to talk with her about it today. Thank you for joining us, Lauren. Thanks for having me. That was a very nice introduction. (laughs) Um, Lauren, could you start off by telling us um, when you first became interested in journalism and how, and then how you made it your career? Oh, sure. Uh, So you mentioned I went to St. Anselm College. And when I was there, I really had no idea what I wanted to do (laughs) with my life. And so I chose history as my major because I figured, you know, we'll we'll cover a lot of ground there and hopefully that'll be helpful. It would be good to know the history of the world, just like as a human in the world. And around the time when I was forced to decide that, it was around the 2008 presidential primary. And St. A's, as you guys know, really gets swept up in the tornado of primary madness around here. And we hosted some of the CNN debates for both. And that, you know, that primary was like full of candidates on both sides. And so I got to be a runner at the CNN debates. And I just was like, this is so fun and so wild. And just used all the things that I, at that point, was interested in just being curious. I did really like to write. Um, I really liked how fast paced everything felt. And I kind of, through that experience, realized I wanted to be involved in news. So I did a bunch of internships in college, like WMUR, and I did a couple of radio internships, not public radio. I didn't actually learn about public radio till like my senior year of college. And then that's when kind of things started clicking for me that TV didn't feel like a good fit, but I liked being in the news. Radio felt like it gave me kind of more room to explore, a little bit more time. I liked the intimacy of radio journalism, but I realized, though my history major was, of course, like very important, that I didn't really have any journalism skills at that point. So I went to the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern for graduate school. And that's where it really was like solidified for me that I definitely wanted to do radio. Um, And as you mentioned, I ended up at WBEZ and interned there before working there full time and just like absolutely fell in love with covering a city. It was so fast paced. There were so many stories, so many things I had no idea about and was so curious to learn. And I stuck around there for a while. Like you mentioned, I covered City Hall for the majority of my time there um, during the administration of Mayor Rahm Emanuel. And it was just like a blast. It's the best political reporting job ever, 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 I think, um, covering Chicago politics. And we would have stuck around there, but then my husband actually got into Dartmouth for his MBA. And so we came back here and I ended up at NHPR 
I did a little political reporting there for a while, covered the primary again, which was kind of a fun throwback after having, you know, been swept up in it in college. And then, as you've heard, uh, left the political beat and got caught up in an even more wild story. Sounds like quite a journey that brought you back to New Hampshire. One thing that I love about the story of the 13th step is how it started with a message from a stranger. Reporters get these kinds of messages all the time. And, you know, as you know, frankly, they usually turn into nothing. Sometimes they turn into a story and sometimes, such as in this case, they turn into a real doozy. For those who haven't heard your podcast yet, could you tell us how you got into the story about Granite Recovery Centers? Yes, of course. Adam, you're so right. Sometimes we get tips that like seem really exciting and then you start sniffing around and you're like, no, this is nothing. And then other times uh, you get quite a situation. So I had been covering, as we all have in the country and in our state, um, at the time it was 2020. So a lot of what we were doing was covering the pandemic and different COVID outbreaks that happened at places that, you know, a lot of people in New Hampshire would want to know about. And in my case, we had gotten some tips about a potential COVID outbreak at Granite Recovery Center's biggest facility, which is Green Mountain Treatment Center. So for those who don't know, uh, Granite Recovery Centers is, I think still today, the largest provider of substance use disorder treatment in New Hampshire. They run a network of facilities. And at the time, it was run by the founder, Eric Spofford. He started the place He had started his career in treatment in 2008 when he opened up a sober home, which is still around today in Derry. Um, And it really grew to this huge, huge network. And so when we got these tips about a COVID outbreak, we figured, well, that was like extremely important thing for anyone to know because they were able to take on so many clients. And so parents and family members, partners, they would want to know if there was an outbreak where their loved one was. So we published a story about the outbreak and we had gotten some tips, like you mentioned, Adam, that like something was awry there. We got those from nurses or people who worked on staff, just that there was COVID there. But once we had published that story, that is where we started to get a lot of tips. And the one that you're mentioning, I think, was from a clinician who effectively was like, you think the COVID outbreak's bad? Like, I have so much more to say. And this person, like I said, was a clinician. She used to work at Green Mountain Treatment Center. And she alleged that Eric Spofford, the then CEO and the founder of Granite Recovery Centers, that he had you know, engaged in multiple allegations of sexual misconduct and that he was paying women to stay silent. And the, some of the women that they were alleging he had hurt were former clients and employees. And so when you get something like that, obviously you're really taken aback, but we, as you know, Adam and Julie, have to check out everything, you know, to the like thousandth degree. And so that's kind of where it all started is I got this big tip. There were some phone numbers in there for other people I should reach out to. And, you know, we go into these things critically, right? You don't just take something like that, especially such a powerful allegation that could really ruin someone's reputation. We take that stuff really seriously and we want to be really careful. And that really set me on a long journey of eventually talking to you know, around 50 people that either were clients of or parents of clients or former employees, current employees, all kinds of people connected to that facility. And what we ended up finding was multiple corroborated allegations of sexual misconduct involving Eric Spofford, who, like I mentioned, was the founder and at the time the CEO. We ended up publishing a news story first 
because we really felt like once we were able to corroborate some of these allegations that the people of New Hampshire really needed to know what we had found. And I had also heard about other potential allegations and people were really afraid of Eric. He is a really wealthy, powerful individual. He's amassed what seems to be from his you know, social media posts, great wealth from running this business and eventually selling it. And so people were really intimidated by, you know, the lengths he might go to defend himself. And people would tell me, sources would tell me he was very litigious. And so people were really worried about coming forward. And the allegations we did end up publishing in that first story, people didn't want to use their names, but were okay using their voices in some cases. Other people were all right coming forward and going fully on the record. But you know, by putting that news story out there, not only were we informing the public of what we had, but it was kind of like we what we hoped and ended up did work out effectively that this was kind of like a vote of confidence in us as reporters that we took this seriously, we corroborated it. And so we thought that then eventually more people would come forward. And that is exactly what happened. But a lot of other things happened. And I should say before we published that initial story, Eric, through his lawyers, denied any allegations of misconduct and actually threatened to sue us if we went forward with the reporting. But as I just mentioned, we did go through with that news story and now is about to get into many, many things. So I'll just let you (laughs) take it from here. Well, one thing I'm really curious about is when did you begin to understand the significance of this investigation? And when you had that realization, how did that feel to you? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. So like I said, we got that initial email. And like you said, Adam, sometimes tips are nothing. And so I, you know, I called that clinician. I called the people that she suggested I call. And one of the people that I talked to pretty early was the former COO of Granite Recovery Centers. And he had told me that he had spoken directly with a woman who was a former client and at the time was an employee of Granite Recovery Centers who alleged that Eric and she and Eric had a sexual relationship that was not always consensual. And so here we have a powerful person in the organization telling me that a former client and current employee was alleging the CEO CEO of sexual assault. So that obviously like, you know, takes you aback, but still had to corroborate that. So didn't really feel you know, fully like, wow, we really got something here. Until I spoke with two other women who shared allegations. And then after that, spoke with people who corroborated those allegations. And once I had, you know, multiple allegations, multiple people corroborating them, that's when I kind of realized like, wow, we really have something here. Because it wasn't only that, you know, people would tell me something happened to them and then they had corroborating sources that backed it up. There were instances where people didn't even know each other and their allegations kind of corroborated each other. So, for example, one woman who we call Elizabeth, she alleged that the day after she left treatment, so she went into Green Mountain Treatment Center for opioid use disorder. She actually went for free. Eric Spofford allowed her to go on what they call scholarship, where he paid for her treatment completely because they had a friend in common. So here she was in a really awful situation, you know, like addiction is, I don't have to tell anybody on this call, is just such a complicated disease. And for Elizabeth, this was not her first rodeo in trying to find recovery. And she was just really devastated at the point that she entered into Green Mountain Treatment Center. 
And so she was so thankful for the opportunity to like have access to treatment. And it's so hard to get into treatment, as I'm sure you both know. So she gets in there and then the first day she gets out, she gets her phone back and she says that on her Snapchat, where like Eric sent her pictures of his penis, which she did not ask for. And she was just so overwhelmed by that. And some of the messages, as she described them, were like out of Fifty Shades of Grey, like really aggressive sexual messages, explicit messages. And I bring that up because later I would learn from a woman we called Employee A, who wasn't in recovery, but worked for Eric and alleged that Eric sexually assaulted her in his office in the middle of the workday. Employee A also told me that before that incident of sexual assault had happened, he had also sent her explicit Snapchat messages. And these are two people who didn't know each other. So once I started hearing about that, that's when I started to be like, these puzzle pieces are coming together on their own in ways that like I did not seek out. And that's when you start to feel like, oh, wow, like incidents of sexual misconduct can be really hard to corroborate because in, in many cases, there's no physical evidence. There's just, you know, two people in a room. And the best, sometimes the best corroboration you can get is if the victim of this then told somebody pretty soon after, and you can talk to that person. And, you know, if those stories line up, that's, that's pretty good. But here we have two individuals who don't know each other, who say they received similar messages that were unwanted and that they felt that they were in kind of a power dynamic, whether it's person who provided you treatment or boss, person who basically pays your rent, and they both didn't know what to do. That's when I was kind of like, oh, wow, like we really, this is really something. And separate from that, you know, I think what really made me feel like this was worth really going for was not only because this was such a big provider and is such a big provider of substance use disorder treatment in a state where, as you both well know, like we have really struggled with the addiction crisis. And so there was that big need there. And so that was intriguing to me, but also like, the more I learned about early recovery and how vulnerable of a time it is, like, of course, active addiction is, is awful. And there's so much going on in your brain, in your body, emotionally, mentally, physically. But then once you start to like, you know, live in a world where those substances aren't in your system, you're starting over, you're trying to find a new path forward how vulnerable you are in trying to find a new life. And for someone to take advantage of that, like really sacred space, that to me was just an unbelievable exploitation that I really felt we people needed to know about. As you tell the story of Granite Recovery Centers and what your investigations revealed about Eric Spofford in the 13th step, you describe how the story also pulled you and even your family into its orbit was there a point where you considered whether you should back off the story? And if you'd had that moment, what made you decide to press on? So for people who don't know, um, what ended up happening was after the news story was published, about a month after, so calls were coming in, I'm still reporting. Um, and so it had been a month since just the news story, because we're talking, of course, about the podcast, but that would come later. So about a month after the news story was published, my parents' home my news director's home and a house I used to live in in Hanover were all vandalized pretty violently. Uh, bricks or rocks thrown through windows and the C word was spray painted in red. My parents' garage doors were spray painted with the C word. 
my boss's front door and the old house I used to live in's front door as well. Uh, so that was awful. And then a month after that, I you know mentioned not any house that I actually lived in. So the thinking at the time was they were trying to find me. And a month after the original incident, they did find me. And a brick was thrown through this huge, big window in the front of my house. And then just the beginning was spray painted in red under the broken window. And my parents' house was hit again, C-word on the garage, and a brick. Uh, but I like to note that this time the brick missed. So that was awful. And then on top of that, Eric Spofford would end up suing me, two of my colleagues, the station, and three of my sources for defamation. So we faced some pretty significant and what I would later learn as pretty unique uh, retaliation for this reporting. At this point, what I can say about the vandalism is that the FBI got involved and federal prosecutors have now charged four men with the vandalism, including Eric Labarge, who is an extremely close friend of Eric Spofford. And then the three other men were men who the feds allege were paid by, solicited and paid by Eric Labarge to do these acts. So that process is still playing out legally, as is the defamation lawsuit that Eric filed against us. So your question was, given all of that, did I ever consider stopping this work? And the answer is actually no, which some of my people, people I think is, is, is pretty weird. But no, I, you know, this was like years of work. And so, so many people, Adam, came to me, whether in confidence or on the record or on background and shared, you know, horrible experiences, even if they weren't sexual misconduct allegations, you know, toxic workplace complaints, um, fear of a powerful person who ran their workplace. People told me that people knew about this abuse for years and no one knew what to do about it. And then, of course, there are the women who actually did make allegations and some who made allegations and then or called me and wanted to talk, went on the record, and then were too afraid and backed out. And for all of that bravery, I'm a stranger to those people. And it just felt like, yeah, I was terrified and it was awful, especially my parents' house. I have a daughter. I'm clear and honest about how miserable and traumatic it all has been. But I was also pretty clear that this was just an effort to stop me from the reporting. And that was just not what was going to happen. And you know, all of those people took a big risk talking to a reporter. And so I had to finish the job. And I'm, you know, lucky that law enforcement in Massachusetts and then the federal government then kind of rushed to it once my house got involved and started an investigation. That's not always the case for victims of crimes and Not everybody, I mentioned three of my sources got sued. You know, I have a station behind me, right? So I have access to resources in both of these cases that my three sources who are sued don't have. And so I was really conscious in a lot of ways of, despite how awful it was for me, how I was going to be able to get through it. And it just didn't feel like fair for me to just drop the thing out of fear when all of these other people had already, you know, done a hard thing and come forward. But yeah, I mean, it was, so there was no moment where I was like, I'm out. 
But of course, there were many moments where, you know, this affected me. But no, no, I didn't consider stopping. Do you think that you would have done it again if you knew what was in store for you? Oh, um, good on you, Adam. No one's ever asked me that one. <laughs> um, how did, would I have done it? I know what was in store. I mean, that is an impossible one to answer, I think, because, of course, you know, I um, I would never want my family to be put in harm's way. And um, like I said, this has deeply affected me. But I, you know, I was committed. My team was committed. The station was committed to making sure this story got to air. And so that, I guess, yeah, I don't know how I would answer that beyond just reiterating that um, I was very committed to bringing this thing to light. It probably would have been possible for you to tell the story in the podcast without including the parts that directly involved you. Could you tell us a little bit about why you and your team felt it was the right choice to include that in the story? Like, you mean um, the vandalism at all or? Yes. When, when you became, when you became a part of the story. Yeah. So we talked a lot about this. I think another way of thinking about your question is I think a lot of people might've made it more about themselves. We really felt like we were like sitting at a crossroads kind of where, where it was like, okay, well now this happened. Uh, how do we even manage it? I mean, when it first happened, we had no idea what to do. So there were many, 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 many hours of conversations about how to manage it, how much of my experience but, you know, a, a big part of this story is, and of course, I, you know, was not a victim of sexual misconduct. So I don't want to say that, like, what I dealt with was, you know, worse, better. Any, I just don't, I don't get into those comparisons. But there's a key theme here that I learned, is, which is that when you're in early recovery, especially, or when you're trying to confront a boss who has harmed you, or when you're in early recovery and somebody with later recovery is, is treating you in a way that is exploitive. There's a huge power dynamic there of fearing retaliation, not knowing what to do. And here we were, huge victims of retaliation for coming forward and making a powerful allegation about some somebody. And so it just felt like we could not ignore it. It was too big and you know, too obvious of uh, another form of retaliation to not include. But how much of me and my experience, I think we, we, I think we really threaded this needle well, where I could have done way more about what it was like to be me and my family in this situation, but I really just didn't want it to be so about me. And so we just tried to give a little sense in the third episode of what that was like for my family, what that was like for me. But, you know, you don't hear from my parents. I don't like interview my husband. You know, there are many ways we could have gone about it, but we just felt like just a touch of it was enough. And this story is very much not about me. Like I didn't want to get brought into it. And, you know, you learn a lot more about early recovery and sexual misconduct from my other sources, which was the point. So, so yeah, I'm in there and we made some decisions about that, but, but I, I think we did just enough where it's not a distraction. It's not about me, but it is a really unbelievable thing that happened that I also should say like had a huge impact on my sources. 
you know, employee A later says in the podcast that like, and this was really like surprising to me that, you know, I mentioned the lawsuit, like my sources faced awful legal letters, you know, threats of lawsuits. And these are expensive things. You know, normal people aren't just like have a lawyer on retainer. Like this, it's, it's like, it's a lot. And yet, despite all that, employee A said that it was the vandalism on my house that intimidated her the most. So, you know, we couldn't ignore it. We couldn't like pretend it didn't happen. Um, and so I think we struck a really good balance of like, it happened. It was scary. It also demonstrates that attacks against journalists are more common. And also we talked to lawyer sources who said that violent attacks, aggressive legal tactics are much more common for women or men or anybody who who makes an allegation of sexual misconduct against a powerful person. So, you know, all of these things were kind of set in a larger scope and among other themes of the show that I think made it relevant. And but it was kind of a lot. I mean, you guys can imagine as journalists yourselves, like I'm not used to being like, this is how I feel about all this. And um, so that it was a hard thing to write and it was a hard thing to talk about. So I feel like we struck a good balance of like, here's what it was like, but not going on and on and on about it. You know what I mean? You've talked today about years of work that went into the reporting and then later the podcast. Could you give our listeners a little bit of a peek behind the curtain about how many hours or how long this type of investigative reporting takes? Oh, my God. I don't think we have enough time. Um, so <laughs> like, so um, why don't I just give one example? Because your poor listeners will be like, Lauren, I have things to do. So um I'm going to give you an example. So in the beginning, so I first heard about um, Granite Recovery Centers and that things might be mismanaged up there in August of 2020. Okay. So I didn't even know about this place. I didn't know who Eric Spofford was. So I started like just like kind of digging around, getting to know the place. And that's really important, basic reporting stuff that, you know, isn't as like maybe exciting as like talking to an actual person, but it's important. So I started doing research, making spreadsheets, understanding like who owned what building, but it wasn't until December of 2020 that we heard about the outbreak. And so it wasn't until the end of December, 2020 and January, 2021, that I started to talk to people who worked there, who were, you know, suggesting that there were sexual misconduct allegations that need to be brought to light and then I had to corroborate those. And in the midst of that, so this is like January 2021, I learned of the HR director at the time that one of these complaints was made. And I spoke with her on the phone, off the record, and she told me a lot of, you know, primary source confirmation of the story I had heard from the COO. A lot of details were lining up. Again, this is January of 2021. It would take this woman, Nancy Bork, a year, year to decide to go on the record and not only go on the record in an interview, but to give me the notes that she actually took during the meeting where the former client and then employee who we refer to as employee B came to her and made an allegation that Eric and she had had a sexual relationship that wasn't always consensual notes, you guys, like the documents are like the gold standard of corroboration. And so I was determined to get them, but Nancy was really afraid to come forward. She had signed a non-disclosure agreement when she left the company. Eric had fired her. 
after she had come to him with this allegation. She had told me that Eric said that he had settled with this woman. You know, she had a lot of information that was essential to this reporting. And I had to just talk to her on the phone many times for many hours, listening to her fears, understanding them, knowing that, you know, possibly Nancy was never going to go on the record. And we would talk about ways I could maybe use her notes that weren't going to be obvious that they were from her. But then we talk about, well, of course they were from her. So it wasn't for a year until she decided, you know what, I'm fine with this. Let's do it. And that was such a key piece with being able to publish that we ended up being able to go forward in May of 2022 with the story. So yeah, this journalism, it, it's, it's pretty, it takes time, but you know, these are real people with real lives, with real consequences. And so, and I understand that. And I wasn't going to force anybody to do anything they didn't want to do. So that's just one example that shows how much time it can take. Now, not every source takes a year, of course, but in this case, that was a really key source that we needed. And Nancy uh, ended up coming through big time, gave me the notes. And, you know, Nancy then ended up getting sued for defamation with us, but has really taken it in stride, despite all of her concerns ahead of time. So that's, I think, a good example that demonstrates that. And I will say, like, when you've had something horrible happen to you and then you tell a stranger about it, uh, or you tell anybody about it, really, it, it's kind of, it can be really re-traumatizing. So I'd have conversations, hard conversations with people, and then they would be very overwhelmed by what they all they told me. And in ca- some cases, wanted to talk about how overwhelming it was after the fact. So there's like a lot of care that goes into this reporting. Um, these are real people's lives and traumatic experiences. And so there are a lot of conversations that happen just making sure people understand, you know, what they're getting into. Now, obviously, nobody knew that what we were really, really getting into here. But uh, to the extent that I could explain how journalism works and, you know, that their voices would be aired and people might recognize them, even though we didn't use their names. You know, those are hours of conversations that to me are so, so important because, you know, like I said, these are people's lives and you want to make sure that they have a clear understanding of uh, what it means to come forward with something like this. Lauren, I really have to congratulate you for the reporting in the 13th step. I followed the reporting all along as it was being published on NHPR. And so when the podcast was released, I thought, well, you know, the document team has always done great work. I should give this a try, but I don't think I'm really going to be that gripped by it because I knew it all right. I knew it all, but hearing it all again and the way that you, you and your team told the story, I just found myself so compelled by it. So, Oh my God, Adam, I'm so glad to hear that because you know, I'm sure you can imagine that that was like in the back of my head that like specifically New Hampshire people who had followed the reporting, I wondered like, are they going to be like, oh, I already know this story because, you know, we did have additional sources. You know, this woman that came forward, Andrea, was so key to introducing me to this whole concept of 13th stepping. So that was new, but I wondered about that. And um, I'm so glad to hear that, that you still found it like so interesting and compelling, even though you very much knew what happened. Yeah, I, well, I, I really, truly did. And so I'm curious what other sorts of reactions you're hearing. How has the podcast been received and what have, your, what have you been hearing since it was released? 
Well, you guys are catching me on a real hot moment because yesterday the New Yorker put out their like top 10 best podcast of 2023 and we were in there, which was unbelievable. I about died. And so, so that was awesome. We were just named a finalist for a DuPont award from Columbia. I mean, I can't even believe, uh, to, to be frank, the accolades that have been coming our way. I will also say, though, that the most, I mean, the New York was like pretty cool, but the most gratifying, I think, would be the word I would use is like people who work in recovery in New Hampshire called me like from their cars and said, like, I can't get out of the car. I can't stop listening. I feel like I've finally been heard. This was going on for so long. We didn't know what to do. You know, so like this was a New Hampshire story, but it was also a national story, right? Like this is 13-stepping, this idea that like people later in recovery can unfortunately sometimes take advantage of people in early recovery. And that sometimes these spaces, which can be so key to recovery for so many people, you know, they can also be a space where unfortunately vulnerable people can be exploited. And for so many people to hear that nationally was unbelievable. And we got emails from people being like, you're telling my story. I live in California and this happened to me. Like that was incredible, but like an awful, but in New Hampshire for people to feel so validated and heard, that really was what stopped me in my tracks the most. I think that people who are so afraid to come forward and then heard all the reporting and felt like, like we made this for them like that, that really, that was really a humbling experience. And I will say that we do get occasional emails for people who 12 step communities are like critical to their recovery and how hard it was to hear one of the episodes we did where we talk about how, unfortunately, like people who want to take advantage of these spaces some of the wonderful things about AA, unfortunately, can be used in not so nice ways. You know, these are spaces where people are sharing their deepest, darkest secrets and looking for support. And unfortunately, not everybody in those circles is there to support. So many, so many people are. But I think that was really, I know, that was really hard for people to hear because, you know, recovery is sacred and people don't want to lose that. And to hear the thing that worked for them to be picked apart in a way, that's really hard. But I, you know, I, I knew that was going to happen and I totally respect it. That's why we were really careful to make sure we weren't like AA is bad because I don't think AA is bad. What I learned is that unfortunately spaces like anywhere where there are vulnerable people who are looking for support, unfortunately can be exploited. Um, and, you know, there are instances where these circles or places don't deal with trauma very effectively. And, you know, a lot of people in recovery are dealing with past traumas and, you know, adding sexual misconduct to the list of the traumas they have to manage is like not great. So we have to grapple with all of the things, the good, the bad, you know, like, and, and I think we did that really effectively, but I totally understand every time I get an email from somebody who's like, Alcoholics Anonymous saved my life. I didn't like hearing the ways that you you critiqued it. And I get that. I totally, totally get that. But on the whole, it's been good. And, you know, the lawsuit has been a lot, but the bulk of what I've received back that's not lawsuit related has been awesome. Lauren, what advice would you have for someone who wanted to start their career in journalism? 
after they just heard all that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I still think it's the most fun job ever. So that might sound very strange given all I just described. But I mean, give me another job, except for maybe like hairstylist, where you just get to hear people's lives and learn about worlds that you may never walk into otherwise. I I just I just think it's the best. But I also acknowledge that this moment in history is an exceedingly difficult one. You know, journalists are maligned by powerful individuals. We've been called the enemy. You know, we, 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 we just, it's not as easy to just go out there with your microphone as it once kind of was. But I believe that that makes it all the more essential and important. And that journalism is like an essential piece of a healthy and functional democracy. And so despite the hardship, like not to be all like Pollyanna, but it really is important work. And so if you're thinking about being a journalist, you should acknowledge that it's tough out there. And obviously we like don't make that much money and we uh, newspapers are like getting slashed, especially hard. And it's not great times, but it's so important and it can be so rewarding. And, you know, I think it's also such a great community of colleagues, you know, like when all this shit happened at my house, people like reporters from all over, like my past colleagues, people I don't even know, they like, you know, they were the first in my corner to be like, this is not okay. And we're so sorry this happened. You know, like it's, we are all very like there for each other. I, I think like Chicago journalism world, like really stood up for me um, in a way that was essential to getting through this. And so I think you should still be a journalist. I think you should acknowledge that it's really hard, but that it's the best job there is. And specifically radio is the best. Um, (laughs) So I think you should do it and just know that you can always ask anybody for help because that's how we all get through the day. Not to speak for you, Adam and Julie, but I'm pretty sure that that's probably how you all get through the day too. Absolutely. And Lauren, where could people go to see more of your work? Okay. They can uh, go to nhpr.org and if they go to their podcast app, whatever app they prefer and type in the 13th step, it's like a pink and orange art that they'll see. And that obviously is like the bulk, but if you want to know like my old stuff, you just Google my name and NHPR and all kinds of things will come up. Stranglehold, the podcast we did about the primary, you know, reporting I did about nursing homes during early COVID Lauren, thank you so much for your time today. It's just really been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Thanks for having me. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, there are resources available. You can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. It's available 24 hours a day. The Granite Beat is a project of the Granite State News Collaborative in partnership with the Laconia Daily Sun. We record at the Lakeport Opera House and our theme music is composed by Bob McCarthy. 
thanks also to the Marlin Fitzwater Center at Franklin Pierce University for editing and other support.